All right, if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, we open them to Daniel chapter 3 as we continue looking at our series in the book of Daniel. A series we've entitled, A Stranger in a Strange Land. Now let's begin reading in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, its width 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, they want to make sure they're all there. Uh, the tre- <laughs> treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the province gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre. In symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As we draw into Daniel chapter 3, there are three discussions that will emerge from our text. That first discussion has to do with us as Christians going through trials as a Christian. Dr. Warren Worsby, pastor of Moody Church back some time ago, said this in his commentary. It should be up on the screen behind you. The devil tempts us to destroy our faith, but God tests us to develop our faith. Because a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Faith, I'm sorry, false faith withers in times of trial but true faith takes deeper root it grows and brings glory to God in the new testament we this term fiery trials is used by peter in first peter chapter 4 when peter writes he says beloved do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you But rejoice to the extent that you partake of the sufferings of Christ, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So the first discussion we're drawn into is, number one, we as Christians can expect to be drawn in to what the Bible calls fiery trials. Many scholars believe that Peter brought that term from our text here in Daniel 3 when he described them as fiery trials. Number two, we have to discuss the, the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. Now, idolatry is something that we don't discuss enough 
in America and the churches of America. We believe that idolatry is contained and confined to a simple worship of some inanimate image, something material. But one individual wrote in one of his books, and I love this, and he stated this, If you love anything more than Jesus, it is an idol in your life. If you love anything more than Jesus, it is an idol in your life. Now think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. Why in the world would he ever say such a thing? Why would he write this? It seems radical, fanatical maybe to some. But let me follow it with the verse that he bases it upon. That verse is found in Mark 12, 29-31. Notice the words of Jesus. Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's important for our discussion today. And notice what he says in verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. And second is like it. It is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus went on to say in the Gospels, a passage of Scripture that again isn't often discussed, and it is difficult to uh, meditate upon because of its implications. But Jesus said to his followers, if you don't love me more than mother and father, son or daughter, he goes on to say, then you are not worthy of me. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? That's the love allegiance that Christ is calling us to. That we love nothing greater than he. And the third discussion that we get into today is one that I'm sure, again, all of you may have been considering over these last several months. When does the Bible prohibit civil disobedience? When is it right to go against the authority that God has placed over us? Oh, and let's be of no mistake. The Bible clearly tells us in Romans 13, one, I don't have it on the slide for you, but Paul writes, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Heavy. You know, sometimes we get what we deserve as a nation, don't we? But the Bible also tells us that there are times to disobey. Through the examples that we have in the Old and New Testament, it begins back in Egypt when the midwives took the moment to defy Pharaoh's order. The order was to destroy all the male children of the Israeli people, and the midwives said no, and they went against Pharaoh's command. When we get into the New Testament, John and Peter are asked by the religious leaders, the authorities of Israel at that time, no longer to preach and to teach and to heal in the name of Jesus. In His authority, that's what that means. 
But Peter asked them this question. As Peter and John answered in Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. There does come a time where we as believers must be loyal to our conscience and disobey civilly against the governing authorities. Now with that also comes the responsibility of the willingness to suffer the consequences of such disobedience. Realize that. To suffer the consequence of that disobedience. In all three of these discussions we find in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. As we read in the first seven verses, Nebuchadnezzar now has created a statue to be worshipped by all. Ninety feet tall. Nine feet wide. A statue of solid gold. Now many wonder what that statue was a statue of. There are some who believe it was an actual statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. That is unlikely. The Babylonian emperors did not see themselves as deities such as the Roman emperors did. They saw themselves, though, as the highest mediator between the people and the pagan gods, but they didn't see themselves as a god, as historians tell us. So it's unlikely it was a statue of himself. Some believe that it was one of the pagan statues. Marduk was the chief god of that time. But that's possibly unlikely too. Because of the fact that this statue is made of gold. It appears that Nebuchadnezzar has made a statue of the statue that he was given in a dream in chapter 2. And in that dream, as we remember from last week, the statue was made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron and clay mixed together. And it showed a succession of uh, empires that would uh, be uh, over and oppressive to the people of Israel during a time called the time of the Gentiles. But it appears that Nebuchadnezzar created the statue in that image of all gold because the gold head of the statue in his dream represented him. And it appears that Nebuchadnezzar is saying uh, indirectly that no one will ever exceed me. You know, it's amazing the arrogant and pride that man has against God. It's astonishing when you see it time and time again. Nebuchadnezzar has already been shown that God is wiser than he is. He was able to answer the questions that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 1 and show that Daniel and his three companions were ten times wiser than the counselors that he had surrounded himself with. In chapter 2, it was God who revealed through Daniel not only the interpretation of the dream that Daniel, I'm sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar had, but also the dream itself. And yet, and yet, even at the promotion of Daniel at the end of chapter 2 and the acknowledgement that God, his God was superior to all the gods, here Nebuchadnezzar appears to once again try to rebel against that authority 
to state no one will succeed me. There won't come an empire raised underneath me and overthrow me. And creates this statue 90 feet high in a place called Duro, which means a walled-in place. It was a place that was designated for this statue, most likely. It's in a plain, the text tells us. That plain allowed for the viewing of that statue at 90 feet tall from far distances surrounding it. And he calls all of the leaders from all over the various provinces to come to the dedication of this statue. And then, of course, he gives the edict, the mandate, if you will, that all are to worship this statue. At the sound of the playing of the various instruments that are recorded here for us, they were then instructed to bow and to worship. Notice the word worship as we go through our text together. Throughout it all, and intimidating each and every person there with the threat that he is more than willing to go through with to have them executed by being thrown into a fiery furnace if they do not submit and obey. Well, in the sea of people, we are going to read that there are three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose conscience won't allow them to bow their knee. Because they serve the one true God and realize that the Lord is one and there is no other God before Him. And now they are placed in a predicament where we find that all three of our discussion questions are now going to be focused and addressed. Number one, that we as believers can anticipate that we will go through trials as Christians. Number two, that we need to understand that idolatry is real and we must resist the temptation of loving anything more or greater than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And number three, there does come a time for civil disobedience. So let us continue in verse 8 together. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews... And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the in symphony, with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regards to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And so it is. The three. Some paint the scene as such, as the gold image is erected there on the plain of Dura, the sea of people surrounding it. At the sound of the music, they all bow in homage and adoration to this gold image, worshiping it. And in the midst of them all, there are three who stand. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to worship the statue that is before them. And as a result, as a result, they are now called out. It happens to all pastors at one time or another. (laughs) They are called out. Now, you can imagine they weren't hard to spot, were they? Now, I have to believe that by the way that these counselors, these Chaldeans, buttered the king up with adoration and praise, reminding him of the edict in which he put forward that all were to be uh, thrown into the fiery furnace who did not obey. You can almost hear the jealousy of them knowing and understanding that in chapter 1, these same three were found to be ten times wiser than they. Again, pride, arrogance comes to the surface. Jealousy, if you will. And now King Nebuchadnezzar needs to confront these three men. These three men are brought forward. But let us know and understand right here and now. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar needed to do to bring his people into subjugation. He used fear and intimidation. He threatened their lives. I believe that wisdom teaches us that if someone has to coerce someone in such a way, they don't have a very strong argument in the first place. That they're desperate to bring people under control. And when we see authorities overreaching their authority circumventing the checks and the balances of a society to bring about their personal desires. It is up to that society at that time then to ask the question, does this make sense? What precedence does this set going forward? How does it affect the fabric of our society? Is this the right thing to do? And in the wake of fear and intimidation, we have to ask ourselves a question at that moment. When we are placed in that position, will we fear man or will we fear our God? I don't desire to place an ultimatum before you. And I I will say to you that this outlines the exception rather than the rule. But there comes a time and place where you have to ask yourself the question, will it ever end? Will it ever be modified and changed and furthered even to points of greater concern? That's my fear of what's happening today in our nation. Are we really counting the cost by implementing these mandates? threatening people with their livelihoods. Individuals who served us during a time when there was so much great uncertainty and we declared them as heroes and rightfully so as they self-sacrificially tended to us are now being fired. How is that possible? With these mandates, when do they end? 
what will be mandated next? What will our children be faced with? I believe that every society at every time is, uh, is confronted with a challenge of such nature. And this is our challenge today. And I ask the question, what happens next? This precedence that's being put forward, what happens next? The field has been changed so many times, right? Things continuously be, are being redefined week after week after week. I think that we need to take a step back as Christians. Remember our policy that we instituted last week? We're going to pray first, right? See what God would do. But I do think for future generations, we need to ask the questions so our children, my daughter, isn't confronted by the government imposing mandates on her and her children that are unwarranted. That's why I'm doing this. It's time in our society to be one of the three and not one of the majority. To stand up and to say enough's enough. Gently, with firm conviction, and to say, I'm sorry, but no further. I'm all for helping people. I'm all for, you know, safety. And and I'm all for loving people. But what's happening now is, isn't the only demonstration of love. A demonstration of love can also be saying enough's enough because I don't want my child to go through what we're going through right now. We need to be one of the three. Standing in the sea of those who are kneeling. We must not be fearful of the repercussions, but understand that by doing so, we invite the consequences of our actions to come upon us. And be willing to do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will do in just a moment. Allow God to step in because they know what they have done is right. And trust Him to take the next step. So let's notice as we pick it up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you uh, do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time, and you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, he says. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I love when God is given an ultimatum by arrogant, prideful people, don't you? Now, this is just a side commentary found in the book of First Eric, if I may. I just picture God in heaven at this point saying, Really, Nebuchadnezzar? Really? 
What a stage to be set. Now notice that it was Nebuchadnezzar who, who brought forward this challenge. It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do with, uh, do with to us what you want. <laughs> Our God will save us. Well, watch what they say here. It's very interesting. They leave room for a miracle, but they always submit to God's sovereignty. At this point, King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to dominate his people. Bringing them into a subjection probably like never before. Is it possible that the image that he saw in his dream that Daniel explained to him created an insecurity in his heart knowing that he would be succeeded by the, Preds and the, uh, the Medes and the Persians? Excuse me. Possibly. But either way, the stage is set. The challenge has been given. And Nebuchadnezzar now stands and waits to see what will occur. But we must first identify that there's a plight among the people to allow them to bow in homage and worship to this statue. One commentator wrote insightfully, I believe, when he says the assembly of worshipers helps us better understand the plight of the people in today's world who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. They blindly follow the crowd and build their lives on false and futile uh, philosophies concerned only with survival. They'll do almost anything to escape danger and death, even to the point of selling themselves into slavery to men and and empty myths that those men promote. And then he says, remember what Job wrote in Job 2.4. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So now we come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The furnace could possibly be, the scholars write, heated to about 1,600 degrees. And now they are faced with this reality. But notice what one writes when he says, True faith isn't frightened by threats, impressed by crowds, or swayed by superstitious ceremonies. True faith obeys the Lord and trusts Him to work out the consequences. So in verse 16, notice with me if you will. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this manner. You know our answer. That's what they're saying. You know what we're going to do. If that is the case, our God, notice what he says in verse 17. This is beautiful. Notice that it is the case, if that is the case, excuse me, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But verse 18, notice they leave for God's sovereignty. But if not, they don't know for sure. They're not acting presumptuously here at this moment. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I love those verses. God can perfectly deliver us from your hand. Keep us from being destroyed in the furnace that we are faced with. But if not, know this King Nebuchadnezzar, 
Either way, we will not bow down before your gods. Or the golden image in which you have set up. In verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, I bet. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It almost appears that he looked for them to change their mind. They weren't only tempted once, but tempted twice. First, at their first opportunity to bow down, and then when the king gave them the second opportunity and ultimatum, they could have capitulated. They could have said, well, you know, guys, you know, huddled together. Well, let's just bow. We're not bowing on our hearts. We're just bowing physically. Doesn't really matter. No, who? This isn't the hill that we should die on. Let's just kind of, you know, go along to get along type of thing. But they chose not to. Even in the face of their own personal destruction, fully confident on God's miracle ability but also submitting themselves to God's sovereign authority. So he spoke in verse 19 again and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in to the burning fiery furnace. Then these men who were bound in their coats, their tu- uh, trousers, and their tunics, uh, turbans, excuse me, and other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the mists of the burning, fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they were not hurt. They are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Wow. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar took a step back? He can't even comprehend what is happening here before him. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego submitted themselves unto God's will, only seeking to do what was right according to His word at the moment, willing to suffer the consequences for their actions, they now are thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, some of your translations may read here in the appearance of the Son of the Gods, okay? This is another what's called textual variant in Bible scholarship. It is due to what is called textual criticism. It's a long conversation that I'll be glad to have with you after church. But the reasoning for it is is that they do not believe who translate it in the appears as the son of the gods that Nebuchadnezzar would have recognized the Savior. 
Because we believe as Christians that this is what's called a theophany. An Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ appearing amongst His people at this moment. In the New Testament, after the resurrection and the ascension, if Christ appears afterwards, such as in Acts chapter 9, it's called a Christophany, a appearance of Christ after His ascension. But it appears that Nebuchadnezzar was saying that there was something unique about this fourth individual. The King James, New King James translators believe that that was referring to Jesus Christ, and this is the reason that they translate it as they do. There was something unique about this fourth person walking in their midst. And like other appearances in the Old Testament, I believe again that this is an appearance of Jesus Christ before His birth in Bethlehem years later. Confirming to His people that I am with you, I see what you are going through, and I will see you through whatever trial you experience. In one way or another. Notice that back in verse 17, I'm sorry, in verse 18, that even if they were to die due to the fact of the fiery furnace, they still have accomplished their obedient goal. And that is to not worship the statue or the gods of Babylon. Sometimes God takes us home in the midst of a trial. Sometimes He delivers us through the trial. Either way, God is with us and has delivered us, right? And that's what they were willing to experience on behalf of God. Isaiah says something very interesting in Isaiah 43 too. Notice the language that Isaiah uses when he says to God's people, he says, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Now this sets up a dynamic witnessing opportunity, doesn't it? Because they were willing to obey God rather than to obey man, because they feared God more than they feared the consequences of man, they allowed God to use them in a unique way before those who oppressed them. When God called His disciples to be witnesses for Him, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the word witness is associated, the Greek form of that word is associated with the word martyr. Meaning, it's laying down one life for another. Laying down one's life for another. Being willing to be martyred for your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that martyrism can be physical, where we lose our life because we choose to obey God rather than man. But it also can mean laying our life down day by day on a continuous basis, as Paul had stated to do. Becoming living sacrifice, which we'll look at in just a moment. Oh, in fact, let's look at it now. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It should be on the screen behind you. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Interesting. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And because they were willing to do so, they created an opportunity to glorify God and to have others notice. If you go a little bit further in the book of Acts, when you come to the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, I believe, notice that his willingness to go before the religious leaders and remind them of their history of stubbornness and rebellion against their God. It ended up with him being stoned by them. He looked up to heaven, he saw Christ standing, waiting for him to arrive in heaven at that moment. But his willing obedience, the sacrifice in which he was willing to make, opened the door for him to be a witness to one who was standing and watching it all. He held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. He's introduced initially as Saul, but later becomes Paul the great champion of the Christian faith. And notice that even though Stephen's life was cut short in our estimation, when he arrived in heaven, not only was he uh, rewarded for his personal obedience and heard those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. But the Bible also indicates to us that all the fruit of Paul's ministry was also contributed to Stephen. As one plants, the other waters, but it's God who gives the increase. That one moment caused Paul to question everything. On the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appears to him, he asks him a question. Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? It is a term that means, why are you fighting against your own conscience? And then he says, who are you, Lord? Asking that question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because of their obedience, opened up an opportunity to glorify God, to be a witness to not only King Nebuchadnezzar, but to all the people that were gathered there at that moment. Can you imagine that? And all they did was stand instead of bow. But let me ask you a question. This is really important, so track with me, if you will. What happens if they would have bowed? Would that glorifying moment of God be realized? Folks, let me tell you, if we think that we can reach the world by becoming like the world, we are lying to ourselves. God is not asking us to conform into the image of the world, to be more like the world, to reach the world. He doesn't want us to be conformed to this world. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Jesus Christ never conformed himself to this world to reach the world. He was always separate. He didn't walk around in haughtiness, pride, and arrogance. He wasn't uh, emulating self-righteousness to those who are around us. His righteousness attracted people to Him because they knew they were lost and He had the answer. 
Now is our time not only to stand with, as one of the three, but it's also our moment to glorify God by being obedient to Him, not capitulating with the world, not conforming into the world's image, that we may stand up and say, God, if you want to use me to glorify Yourself and to draw people onto You, so be it, I will trust in You. That's the moment we are at right now. In verse 26. I better calm down. I feel my blood pressure going up. I love Daniel. Daniel is one of my favorite books, guys. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. I guess he's finally starting to get it. He's waking up. He says, come out, come here. I would love just for that addition saying, no, no, we're not coming. It's cold out there. And I think I have biblical grounds for thinking that. You know why? Because when Peter was on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and he saw Jesus in all of his glory, remember what he said? Do we really got to go back down there? It's way cooler up here. I like this. I'm not sure about going back down there. For some reason, they were unwilling to come out. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, and I think this is interesting that all of these are listed. The satraps, the administrators. We don't know what satraps actually are. It's another word for governors. But the New King James, Old King James uses this term. So we don't know the true identity of these individuals. Administers, governors, and king's counselors gathered together. They're all watching. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair on their head was not singed. Or were their garments affected by the smell of the fire and it was not on them? Now, I can't even sit next to a bonfire without carrying it home with me. And you know, it's interesting. Every time I go to someone, they say, hey, come on over, we're going to have a fire pit tonight. Or they say, come on over, we're going to have a bonfire tonight. I get the one seat that the smoke starts blowing through. And you know, it's, I, I look purposely, uh, because I'm selfish, I, I look pur- purposely saying, okay, which one's not going to get blown in? Okay, this one, and you know, hey kid, get out of there. And you know, I sit down, and then sure enough, God's like, yeah, right. And it's just billowing on me, you know. My glasses are all fogged up, and I'm just sitting there, and Pastor Eric, are you okay? <coughs> I'm fine, thank you, you know. These guys were in a 1600 degree furnace and they didn't have one ounce of evidence that they had been in there. Not one. God had preserved them so perfectly through this experience. What an incredible opportunity. Notice verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's where our obedience to God should lead a unbelieving world to glorify our God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The God most high. That's what our lives should be manifesting. And they saw these men on whose bodies had no power Their hair and their head was not singed. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God, verse 28, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel 
Often in the Old Testament, a theophany is announced by a term, the angel of the Lord. In the Old King James, New King James, that phrase is capitalized to indicate that that's what we believe theologically is happening there. And so, again, we hold, I hold to the position that this was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. The, his angel delivered his servant whom trusted in him, and they have frustrated. Notice that. I love that. They had frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. You know what they were saying to King Nebuchadnezzar? Let me sum it up this way too, if I may. We believe what we believe. Their convictions demonstrated true faith, true belief in the God in whom they serve. When the world sees us conforming into its image, when the world sees us capitulating to their desires for what they believe society shall look at, we are telling the world if by doing so, we really don't believe in the God in whom we serve. That's what it's saying here. Notice that. We confirm our true faith, our true belief, by being obedient to the Word. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar uh, um, identifies and confirms for us. Verse 29, Therefore I make the decree, any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces. He, he really liked that motivational strategy, didn't he? shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made of ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. He is actually admitting the futility of his gods. Then king Neb- uh, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Isn't that amazing? We need to be one of the three. Subjecting ourselves to the will of God, realizing that He can miraculously deliver us, but we always submit ourselves to His personal sovereignty in our lives. And we do so for the moment that we may be true witnesses to those who are around us, that we serve the one true God, that we believe what we say we believe. I believe that we should get along with everybody to the best of our ability. I believe that we should pray for the leaders that God has placed over us in sincerity. But I also believe that when it comes to my love allegiance, I am to love no one greater than my Savior, Jesus. I'd like to leave you with this verse, if I may. It's found again in Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yahweh the Lord is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. 